So for anybody who's listening along, I have successfully said week one, day one, week one, day two, week one, day three, up until this point. But all of those notes are actually week two. (laughs) I can't read. Week one is just read the Gospel of Mark and try to summarize its contents to try to get a picture of the whole. And then uh, week two actually begins our, you know, five day a week march through the the Gospel of Mark. And... uh, Oh my goodness. So this is week two, days four and five, Mark chapter one, verses nine through 13. Here are the notes. Jesus was, quote, from Nazareth in Galilee, verse nine. Mark includes this biographical note of Jesus's background to lay another accent mark on his larger theme that Jesus is the Old Testament's promised sacrificial servant of God. While most who come to be baptized by John were from Jerusalem, Israel's leading religious center, Mark, quote, has Jesus coming from a village of no reputation in Galilee. That according to Cooper. Verse 9 states, quote, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Jordan River had featured prominently in Israel's salvation history and now was the place where her Savior symbolized his death for them. Why was Jesus baptized? Cooper provides a succinct and powerful reply. Quote, Jesus was baptized by John, not because he needed to repent of sin, but to identify with sinful humanity. Close quote. The ESV study Bible concurs, quote, Jesus identifies with the sins of his people, even though he himself is free from sin. Using your imagination, try to envision the multitudes of men and women entering the waters to confess their sins and be baptized by John. Some may have only been performing spiritual ritual without faith in Christ, but for those who believed on him, imagine hearing the cry of multitudes publicly reciting his or her sins. Then, see each one being dipped by John beneath the water. Although the waters did nothing to wash away away one's guilt, try to imagine the innumerable sins of the people contaminating the waters. Then, Envision multitudes of those who were truly Messiah-trusting people emerging, drenched from the waters with the hope of God's new covenant promises. Certainly, many who heard John's preaching rejected his message and stood beneath God's terrifying judgment. But on behalf of those who were truly converted, imagine the spotless Savior Lamb entering the same waters in which they were baptized. Envision him taking the proverbial web of the guilt of the masses upon himself as if the sins from which they were cleansed now clung to him until he paid for them on the cross. In his baptism, Jesus identified with his people and demonstrated that he had come to make atonement for our sins. For this reason, John the Baptist cried out, John 1.29, quote, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. According to Shatler, quote, He associates himself with sinners and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt in flight from the approaching wrath, but because he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1 contain the Father's dual expression of acceptance and affirmation of his Son. The heavenly voice that thundered over Jesus at his baptism daily in the rescue mission, oh, sustained him daily in the rescue mission he was sent to accomplish. The Father says in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I'm well pleased. In Isaiah 64, 1, quote, the prophet was the first to speak of the rending of the heavens and the descent of the Messiah. 
that's from Edwards. The word Mark uses for heaven's, quote, opening, uh, schizmenos, schizen is the root, uh, according to Edwards, appears in Jewish literature for cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power, such as the dividing of the Red Sea, Exodus 14.21, Moses' cleaving the rock, Isaiah 48.21, the splitting of the Mount of Olives on the day of the Lord, Zechariah 14.4. The first coming of Jesus is cataclysmic, the heavens opened, because he has come to inaugurate the end of all things. That is, Jesus came for salvation as well as for judgment. The coming of Jesus was, quote, the beginning of the end. The last days, according to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, began with the arrival of Jesus. By declaring that the heavens were opened, verse 10 and 11, the same Greek word used for torn, rended, split, or ripped, Mark is once again drawing attention to Jesus' deity. This word only occurs one other time in Mark's gospel, quote, when the centurion confesses the crucifixion, at the crucifixion, that Jesus is God's son, at which time the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That was Edwards. Putting this together, when Mark speaks of God's coming to us, Jesus' incarnation and baptism, and of God opening a way for us to come to him, the tearing of the veil in the temple, he uses the same word, schizo. In the same way, the rending of the heavens brackets Mark's gospel. Because of the life and gospel labor, labors of Jesus, heaven has come to us, Mark 1, so that we could have a home in heaven, Mark 15. Worship. Mark wants his reader to know that the heavens were ripped open two times. First, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, during his baptism, when heaven, that is the Father, declared Jesus to be his divine Son. Second, at the end of Jesus' public public ministry at the cross, when the nations, that is the Gentile centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and was converted as the temple veil was torn, confessed Jesus to be God's Son. Although the centurion didn't see the temple veil torn because he was at the foot of Christ's cross, he represents all who have bold access to God through Christ's atoning blood. Indeed, in this one word, Mark provides a summary of the entire purpose of Jesus' incarnation. It is significant that immediately upon his baptism, Jesus saw, quote, the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him, verse 10. In the book of Exodus, quote, God could not come down until the people had been consecrated. For this reason, Jesus expressed a vicarious confession of sin on behalf of the many. He walked into the waters of baptism, obedient to the Father's will. He had consecrated himself in faith. But in this instance, God came down, and there was was striking attestation that sonship had been reestablished through the one true Israelite whose repentance was perfect. That was a quote from Lane. Isaiah spoke of, quote, the descent of the Spirit as a dove and a voice from heaven in association with the new exodus in the wilderness, Isaiah 32, 44, 63. Hosea also predicted that God would renew Israel's sonship in the wilderness in Jesus, according to Lane. This ancient promise finds fulfillment precisely because his pilgrimage into the wilderness was the only true exodus. There is no indication in Mark that anyone other than Jesus understood the significance of his baptism. The declaration of the Father in verse 11 is worth extended meditation and application and ought to evoke from us Jesus' exalting praise when the Father says, You are my Son, in you I am well pleased. This brief phrase 
includes two divine assertions about Jesus of Nazareth. First, Jesus was fully accepted by the Father, you are my son. Second, that he is fully approved by the Father, in you I'm well pleased. Knowing and believing these two foundational realities, Jesus was entirely secure in his relationship to the Father to trust his good pleasure, Ephesians 1, 5, 9, and 11, and to be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2, 9-11. The astonishing the astonishing promise of the gospel is that those who are in Christ by faith, in his finished work, are, ex- are as accepted and as approved before the Father as Jesus is. John 15, 9, 1 John 3, 1. Jesus credits to us his own status in the Father's family. Believe and worship. Verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1 read, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Lane says Jesus' expulsion into the desert is the necessary consequence of his baptism. It is the same Spirit who descended upon Jesus at his baptism who now forces him to penetrate more deeply into the wilderness. There's a chart on page 47 of your study that just references some of the key 40-day episodes in Scripture. Jesus' temptation, obviously, here in Mark 1 was 40 days. Uh, Moses was on Sinai in Exodus 24:18 for 40 days. Elijah wandering in the wilderness, 1 Kings 19, 8 to 15, was also 40 days. It seems that Mark's trying to draw attention to those moments in redemptive history. In addition to Jesus' solidarity with Moses and Elijah's 40-day experiences, Jesus is also shown to supersede them both by infinite degree. He is the true and greater lawgiver and the true and greater lawkeeper and the true and greater prophet. The temptation of Jesus also mirrors and surpasses the experience of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Whereas Adam was in paradise with every need supplied in abundance yet failed, Jesus was deprived in the barren wilderness, yet succeeded. According to Lane, Jesus' obedience to God is affirmed and sustained in the wilderness, the precise place where Israel's rebellion had brought death and alienation in order that the new Israel of God may be constituted. But we must realize that this was not the end of Jesus' temptations by Satan. Quote, according to Lane, It is significant that Mark does not report the victory of Jesus over Satan nor the end of the temptation. It is the evangelist's distinctive understanding that Jesus did not win the decisive victory during the 40 days, nor did he cease to be tempted. According to Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Finally, on today's notes, verse 13, Mark tells us that, quote, the angels were ministering to him. Just as was the case in the first exodus, the presence of the Lord was manifestly with his people, leading and guiding them. Also, just as an angel ministered to Elijah in his wilderness experience, 1 Kings 19, 5-7, so also angels ministered to Jesus. Mark does not indicate that the angelic ministry to Jesus ceased after his temptation. Mauser concludes, therefore, that, quote, Mark thinks of the temptation and the service of the angels as continuous events in the course of which all the forces of God and Satan are simultaneously present. Close quote. In Mark, Jesus is continually confronted by demons and temptations and overcomes them all. With this magisterial Christology, Mark begins his gospel account, 
Moving forward, Mark gives a fast-paced look at Jesus' life and ministry from Galilee to Jerusalem, culminating in the cross and resurrection. Nearly half of Mark's material is devoted to the final week of Jesus' earthly life, clearly indicating that the gospel events are Mark's primary focus. Lord bless you all.